0: we have been studying for the last several weeks how the gospel changes the human heart and today as we have done before each of our messages we have a testimony of how jesus has changed someone's life Want to introduce to you stephen baldwin stephen has been working in the entertainment industry as an actor and he's also now an author for over 30 years Uh, he and his wife kenya they have been married this year, right at 27 years. Uh, they have two grown daughters. He was in town this past weekend to speak at an annual uh, fundraiser gathering for Concepts of Truth, and he has graciously consented to join us today and to share his story of how God has changed his life. Would you join me in welcoming Stephen Baldwin to our church? Thank you. Morning. Stephen, thank you so much for coming and being willing to do this. Let me just ask you, how did the Lord Jesus change? first change your life and the heart of your, your wife, Kenya?
1: Well, we don't have enough time to tell the whole story, Pastor. Um, but it's uh, I just want to say thanks for uh, uh, having us this morning, uh, any opportunity to uh, communicate with people what... What Jesus is doing is always a, a privilege uh, in, in my opinion, so thank you for uh, uh, allowing my wife and I to be here today. Uh, the, the, the real quick story is uh, I, I met this pretty young gal in New York City who is from Brazil, uh, and, and for you young men, gals from Brazil can sometimes be very pretty, so uh, I, I at the time, didn't know Jesus, uh, and I just did what what's normal, and I chased after her, and uh, 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 it all worked out. In, in the beginning there, I, I think the attraction w- was one of these things like, well, well she's pretty, and I kind of, pretty much, I only look stupid, so, you know, I'm going to do what I can to work this thing out. Uh, little could I have ever wildly imagined or known that like all of us, God had a plan for us. And uh, uh, we were married uh, and moved to Arizona and had our first daughter. And through my wife's family, she uh, was able to communicate with friends, uh, sorry, family of her in Brazil. Uh, We hired this gal to come live and work with us as like a housekeeper and a nanny. Uh, And this was 24 years ago. Um, That gal's name was Augusta. Uh, She came to work with us and and after working with us for several weeks and communicating with my wife in Portuguese because that's the only language she spoke, uh, she eventually explained that the real reason she had taken the job was that the Lord had spoken to her back in Brazil. Uh, So when she had the opportunity to come to America and work for these complete and total strangers, She spoke with her pastor and prayed with the prayer group, and the Lord spoke to her and said that if you go and work with these people, they will come to faith in Jesus Christ and at some point after that be involved in ministry. So my wife explained this to me, and at the time, this was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because I was an actor, and I was making money, and had a pretty gal, and pretty wife, and a beautiful daughter, and, you know, things were good. Uh, But As a result of of that beginning and a sequence of events and my wife coming to faith before I did uh, and in my own personal experience it was mostly uh, my being able to witness my wife's walk with the Lord for the first year Uh, and I'm just gonna tell you the story she she never pointed a finger at me she never said you better do this she never said you better do that she just fell in love with Jesus and focused on him. And as a result of that, uh, I was able to, you know, start to become more and more curious about the experience she was having. Long story short, you know, we both came to faith. Uh, I started working uh, with an evangelistic organization, uh, and and I actually, for four years, from about 2004 to 2008, I, I toured the United States, with an extreme sports ministry like skateboarders and stuff like that, I would go to cities. I went to 125 cities over four years preaching the gospel to young people through a skateboard ministry. And and I got to tell you, you know, I'm standing here today, you know, my dad made $25,000 a year and it was a school teacher and a football coach and he raised six kids and, and me and my four brothers were just probably just you know, arrogant enough to think we can go into Hollywood and, and, and make some money. And that and that's what we did. And the Lord allowed that, specifically in my case, for a reason, to allow me to have the platform I have now so that I can come into the, uh, well, the truth of Jesus. I can come into that understanding and, and then recognize that all of that was as a result of what God had planned and intended. Uh, the only difference was, you know, were we going to be obedient to that calling and... and and I think thus far we've done pretty good. Okay.
0: You know, after you came to know Jesus and you traveled with that ministry, you shared something with me earlier when we were in the office. There was there was still another, another major shift in your life where you really began to see some things that you hadn't seen before. Um, and you called it discipleship. Can you describe that transition and how things really began to change for you?
1: Yeah, you know, because um, I think... I'd like to back into that for a second, you know, because where I'm at now, is Kind of the wildest part of the ride for me, you know, because I've made millions of dollars over ten Lost it all I've had six or eight or ten cars I Have been lifted up in this world as a famous person never did satisfy that question in my heart who am i why am i here what is my purpose etc cetera, etc cetera. it wasn't until and i've been walking with i've been born again almost 15 years and just in the last year and a half have i really begun to scratch the surface of comprehending really as a result of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, you know, only now am I scratching the surface of truly understanding what this walk and what this relationship means. And and here's the bottom line. You know, the Bible says be like Jesus. I really don't think Jesus was too concerned about what people thought of him. I kind of feel that today now too. And I just say that because I know in my heart as I stand here before you today, I am free. I have the joy that only comes with Jesus Christ. And uh, amen. And the best part is the peace that goes beyond our understanding. All of God's promises in the gospel and in his Bible are true. And I just want to talk to you young people in the middle here that I see. Let me tell you something. This ain't no joke. This is real. And if you don't stay connected to the vine, and if you don't stay in God's word, and you don't get on your knees and pray, and you let yourself get too busy in this world, B-U-S-Y spells busy, being under Satan's yoke. That's the acronym for busy. We're, we're, we're called to, to do our best to humble ourselves, seek the face of Christ and Jesus Christ, and then serve as best we can. And that, that's, there's nothing for me now that I aspire to do than to be in, in His will. You and your wife
0: have been involved now in ministry and you have ministry things that are happening now. Could you share with us just a little bit how we can pray for you and some of the things that God is opening up for you? Well, I'd say
1: uh, everybody please pray for my wife because she's crazy <laughs> for Jesus. But we have a lot of fun. Uh, I'll tell you, June 10th we're married 27 years and we're empty nesters and for what it's worth, y'all, it's like we're dating again because of Jesus. Because I've learned the best way I can show Jesus how I love him is to be of service to my wife as best I can. That's what I've learned. I could never do that on my own. That's not me. You know, in my flesh I'm me, 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 right? But uh, I, I just had a little project come out uh, on a website called ChristianCinema.com. Uh, and, and it's a, a little theatrical thing I did, a one-man show called The Thief on the Cross. Well, we, fi- we filmed that, and now it's, it's out there at ChristianCinema.com. And uh, I just started a, a new company called Lightbeam Media. We just produced our first three Christian projects and uh, got another one. We're getting ready to go do in a couple months in Puerto Rico. I would just ask for, you know, your prayer for, you know, for us to stay focused on the Lord and protection for my wife and our family, and just, uh, you know, that God would continue to be the Lord of our lives, you know, and and uh, and that we would just one day at a time trust in Him.
0: Amen. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray together for Stephen and Kenya, and we want to pray for you. Um, some of you know that Gail and I lived out west about 30-some-odd years ago also, and, and one of the things we observed when we were serving a church there in Hollywood, West Hollywood and Beverly Hills, was that there were – Frank Lloyd Wright, I think, said it best. He said, all of North America was on a tilt, and everything loose rolled into Los Angeles. <laughs> and there were two kinds of people we encountered regularly, people who were running to something People who are running to something and people who are running from something. And what God has done in Stephen and Kenya's life is, is a major expression of his power and his grace. To take two people who were immersed in a world where it's very easy to be deceived and to be intoxicated by fame or the lure of fame. And, and to completely reorient their minds and their lives to focus on him. That's a work of God. And we can thank him for that you may find yourself in a position where you're seeking and you're hunting and you're still asking questions. And at the end of this service, we're going to give you an opportunity to encounter and discover Jesus Christ the way Stephen and Kenya did. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the story of your power in the life of this couple. We thank you, Father, that even though they weren't looking for you, you were looking for them. And you sent uh, a maid, uh, a household worker who became to them light and life as she shared the gospel, first with Kenya and then ultimately with Stephen. We praise you for that. We thank you for what you've done in their lives since. And, And even as they didn't even know where to begin, you began to guide them and raise up people in their life, to teach them your word, to show them, and to help them grow in Christ. Father, we know that in this auditorium there are others sitting here just like them, They're in different places in their life, they have different challenges, but they're hearing this morning that their need is for Jesus. And we pray today that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, that your presence would be real and obvious to every person here, and that you would speak to each of us through your word. Thank you, Father. Father, we pray that as Stephen and Kenya return home tomorrow, you bless them with safety. But we also pray that you would bless and use their ministry for your honor and for your glory. We pray that each of these projects, that you would use them to change lives. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Y'all say thank you to Stephen. Appreciate it. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. John chapter 8 and verse 1, talking this morning about the gospel on your guilt, the gospel on your guilt, and if anyone ever experienced guilt, it was this dear lady that we're going to read about this morning, John chapter 8, and I'm beginning in verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the mist, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking, asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience Went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And sin, no more. As you opened your Bibles, you may have noticed that this particular passage of Scripture is sometimes bracketed. Uh, sometimes, and there are actually some versions of the Bible where they make a big footnote out of it. Uh, they'll they'll put a, all kinds of information in the in the notes about it, suggesting that there's a question about this this particular passage of Scripture. And the question is, does this passage belong in the Bible? Let me give you the short answer. This is something we could really get distracted by, but I just want to give you the short answer, and then we can give you the long answer later on this afternoon if you want to come here instead of taking a nap. The short answer is this. This particular portion of Scripture, this particular story, in the very earliest manuscripts, Greek manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John does not appear. However, very early on, this story does appear, and it appears in John's Gospel later. Early Christians saw this, and they saw something about it that was very significant. In fact, um, all of the scholars that I respect and most of the ones that I don't respect all believe that this really happened, that this is truly an event that occurred in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And, and so the early Christians saw that, and they said, this story, this looks like Jesus, this is just like Jesus, and it needs to be in the Scripture. And, and so it appears that this place in John, where they, where they put it, but there are significant uh, things that help us know that, that this is a real story, but maybe John didn't write it, and, um, but not to be concerned or alarmed. This is an eyewitness account. In the last 15 or 20 years among Bible scholars, one of the areas of study that's been growing has been the study of orality, or how story or history is transmitted as one person tells it to another person as they tell it to another person. And this story has all the marks of an eyewitness account. One of the great examples of that is the fact that Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground. Why does he do that? We have no idea. But it's the kind of detail that you find in an eyewitness account that marks it as a story of something that really happened. If I was making it up, I wouldn't put that in there, certainly not without an explanation, but it appears. And this happens throughout the New Testament as we see so many eyewitness accounts in the Gospels as they've been given to us. So I believe what we have here is a real incident from the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and something that we need to give our attention to. The religious leaders are setting a trap for Jesus. They're trying to set Moses against Jesus and his teaching. Moses taught a certain thing should happen. When adultery occurs, there should be capital punishment. Jesus was teaching truth and mercy and forgiveness. If, if you emphasize morality the way that they are emphasizing morality, you're going to crush someone. And so this was an opportunity for Jesus. If he stood with morality, he could crush this woman. And he would probably drive away all those sinners and tax collectors and all the people that came to hear him on a regular basis. If he sided on the, era, on the side of compassion, there's a tendency among us and among cultures universally, if you side with compassion, you try to dismiss morality. You try to set it aside. You set those demands aside. But Jesus brings the two together. And he does it in such a way that they are not able to trap him. She's caught in the act the Bible says. Verse 3, and again in verse 4, it stresses the fact that she was caught. And, and you, can you imagine greater shame, greater embarrassment, a greater sense of wanting to go crawl under a rock and to hide. She's caught in the very act. Her shame is exposed. Her guilt is on public display. And are you here struggling with guilt this morning? It may be something recent that's crept into your heart and mind and it's pressing on you. It may be something you have dealt with for years, something that you said, something that you did years ago, and you feel it intensely, and you're carrying it with you all the time. We react to guilt in many ways. Some of us, the most common way that you and I react to it is we blame somebody else. We blame People we think are more responsible than we are for our guilt. We blame our parents. We blame our families. We blame our spouses. We blame our friends. Ultimately, we may even blame God. The worst kind of guilt I can imagine would be that person who is always blaming themselves, And you are not able to experience forgiveness because of the blame that you're using to manage these overwhelming feelings of guilt. How does Jesus respond to the guilty person? What does he do? We've been stressing that the gospel is good news. How is Jesus in this moment going to possibly be good news to this woman caught in the very act and who, according to the law, should experience capital punishment? What is he going to do? First, how does Jesus respond to your guilt? First, he does not excuse you. You say, well, pastor, that's not helping me yet. Well, hang with me, okay? He doesn't excuse anybody else either. The Bible, in verse 7, it says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And Jesus is saying a couple of things about these men in this moment. But basically, he's saying they are not qualified to judge her. First of all, they were violating the law themselves. The law in Leviticus 22 and, and uh, Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20, the law was as if you caught someone committing adultery, there was usually two people involved. Now, that doesn't take rocket science to figure that out, right? People don't get caught by themselves in adultery. There's a man and a woman involved. And that when these people were caught in adultery, the two of them were to be brought out. And, and based on eyewitness accounts, they were to be stoned, put to death. So, adultery is serious business. But these men had violated the law. Where was the man? If they caught her red handed, if they caught her in the act, if they caught her and they stressed the fact that they had caught her doing this, that they had all of the the biblical or legal requirements to stone her, they had the eyewitnesses. They couldn't just suggest that this was happening or think this was happening or have some evidence, uh, external evidence of this was happening. They had to see that this was happening and they caught her doing it. Where was the guy? So they weren't qualified to judge her. They were breaking the law themselves. But let me tell you something else Jesus said. Notice he says, he who is without sin. You know what that means? Sinless. He who is without sin. That means no sin. That one can throw the first stone. Now, what if they just stood there? Have you ever wondered that? What if these guys were were just obnoxious enough and insensitive that Jesus said, the one without sin, you can throw the first stone, and they just stood there? Let me tell you what would have happened. Let me tell you why these guys left, because they knew what was going to happen. Jesus had done it before. He knew people. He knew what was inside of people. He knew who they were, what they were, what they had done. And I believe with all my heart what Jesus would have done and say, okay, Dustin, you think you're good enough to throw the first stone? Let's talk about Dustin for a few minutes. All right. Okay, a few hours then. And here's Mike. Mike thinks he's good enough to throw the first stone. Let's talk about Mike for a few minutes. You could be here all day, he says. He says. I think that's optimistic. (laughs) Right, Cindy? (laughs) Who wants that? So one by one, starting with the oldest first, do you notice how the Bible says that? Starting with the oldest first, one by one, it says they left. Who wants that? Who wants to be exposed? Who wants their names to be put on display with their sins? Who wants that kind of exposure to their life? And Jesus says, hey, guys, guess what? One without sin, you can throw the first stone. He just was ready wasn't he i wouldn't want any part of that i'd be i would be the first one out i think i'm old enough the bottom line is that people who deserve judgment are not qualified to cast judgment he's not excusing her sin he's not excusing anybody's sin the fact is not only does she deserve to be stoned but every man standing there deserved to be stoned. Jesus said, guys, and they knew he taught this. They followed him closely. They were always listening to him, always waiting to catch him in something that he said or did. He was the one that taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Guys, if you may think adultery is, is just not committing a physical act, but if you even look on a woman to lust after her, you are guilty of adultery. You should be stoned, was the only conclusion you could reach. The fact is, all of us are in that woman's place. All of us deserve to be stoned. All of us, all of us. Well, you may not have been caught or exposed, but you've got to know deep down in your side that he does not excuse you. All of us have sinned. Second way that Jesus responds to your guilt. Number two, he does not accuse you. Not only does he not excuse you, he does not accuse you. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, "Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you?" Now notice it says he got up, he saw no one but the woman. And what he says next is going to tell you a lot about how Jesus responds to guilty people. Because she was he never said she wasn't guilty. He never tried to deny her her action or what she had done. And so now he's about to respond. He could have said to her privately, now look. Hey, you just just narrowly missed it this time. You better straighten up. I mean, we talk to our kids that way, don't we? (laughs) What does he say next? He says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? You know what I see here? Jesus is not part of any group of people who are accusing another group of their sin. He's not part of that. Instead of of looking at her as somehow less than him, as all those men stood there and they were looking at her, they felt superior to her. And instead of feeling love, they were all about the moral conclusion to her life. They were all about condemning her. They didn't care about her as a person. They highlighted her sin, but not their own. And you know, you and I are really good about that. We're really good to talk about the sins that, that we're not participating in, and we highlight those. And we, we rock people's world. We, we condemn. We preach. We We attack, we criticize, we post. We say all kinds of things about those sins. But we don't talk about our sins, do we? We tend to pick and we tend to choose. I want justice in the world. I want enough justice to take care of people who do those sins. I don't want enough justice in the world to take care of mine. And that's how those men were behaving. And that's what Jesus was calling them out. They were about punishment, not forgiveness. And Jesus had no part of it. Where are your accusers? I'm not part of that. I'm still here, but I wasn't accusing you. Let me tell you who was on their side. Let me tell you who was on the side of all those men. Satan. Satan is the ultimate accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible tells us that Satan accuses the brethren. I'm not talking about people outside the body of Christ. I'm talking about people who are in, people that know Jesus. It says, Satan accuses the brethren night and night day. And he continues that until he's cast down, and that's what Revelations twelve ten describes. He accuses you night and day. The moment you begin to accuse a brother or sister, the moment you take this position where you're not expressing love for them, you're all about condemning them, the moment that you do that, you have just changed sides. And friend, you're on the wrong side. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He does not accuse you. The third thing that Jesus does when he responds to your guilt is this. He comes to you with gentleness and mercy. He comes to you with gentleness and mercy. Again, look at verse 10. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. I'm going to say the last phrase. For just a moment let's just stop there this whole story illustrates a prophecy that was made about the messiah by the prophet isaiah it's recorded in matthew 12 verse 20 listen to what it says a bruised reed he will not break a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory Now here, here's a person of absolute power and majesty. He is going to bring, ultimately, he's going to bring victory over all evil and all sin. And yet, he comes to her with no accusation, with no condemnation. And he comes to her gently. How do you approach someone who is messed up? You do it like that. The bruised reed he'll not break. I don't know uh, what would be a good example of this. You guys know that I dropped into this farming world. Um, Dustin could probably give, give me a better example of this. But I'm thinking about... A broken corn stalk or a broken piece of grain or, or wheat. And it's just hanging by a thread. You know what I'm talking about? And that, that broken plant just hanging by a thread. And he says he won't break it. How many people do you know are just hanging by a thread? He said smoking flax, like a, the, the, you blow a candle out and there's just a little red glow left there. And it's got a little bit of smoke, a little bit of heat left in it. And it says he's not going to put it out. He's not going to snuff it out. Do you know that Jesus could have completely destroyed this woman in such a way that she would never have had interest in God the rest of her life? Do you see that? And how many times, if you and I are not careful, when someone is messed up, when someone is broken, when someone is hurting, and we got them, (laughs) we, we, we can... We can call them out on it. We can expose them. We can talk about them. We can can post about it. We can spread about it. How many of those people have been driven away from God by some of the people of God? And he is completely gentle with her and he shows her mercy. She is not going to be lost forever to God if he has anything to do with it. He's in... She's in his hands, and he has great power, but he's going to use it to heal her life and change her life, not destroy her life. I believe you and I need to be like that when we find out dirt about people. It is uh, the Apostle Paul in Galatians that says, You are spiritual. He said, Restore someone. If they're caught, restore them gently. Last of all, number four. When, when Jesus responds to your guilt, he calls you to a new life. Calls you to a new life. Look at verse 11. Here's the last phrase. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that's shocking to me. He redu- re- removes all of the condemnation, removes all of that guilt, he removes all of that basis for attacking and accusing and condemning he removes all of that first and then he says go and sin no more i don't know about you but my tendency would be to turn it around my tendency would be now look go and sin no more go and sin no more and then i'll remove all your condemnation and i'll remove all your guilt but jesus doesn't do that he turns it around the foundation for a new life the foundation and the basis for a new life is forgiveness. Not trying harder, not doing your best, not trying to get it right no matter how many times you fail. The whole entire basis of your life as a Christian is based on the fact that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 1. The whole basis of your life in Christ is based on that fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he bore all your sins in his body on the tree. All of them were carried away. You say, well, pastor, that sounds good, but, but I persistently f- have felt guilt. I hear what you're saying, and I've heard preachers for years, and, and I understand with my head this idea of grace, that God forgives me, and, and he gives me something I don't deserve. I get that. I hear you, pastor. But why am I persistently guilty? I believe you're persistently guilty because you are going to the wrong place with your guilt. The law in the Old Testament, which is featured in this story, God gave it so you and I would know what produces life. What is right and what is wrong from God's point of view is the best way to live. It is life as God intended it to be lived. It is good. It is not evil. The problem with the law in the Old Testament is that it lacked the ability to help you keep it. There was nothing in the law that really worked for your forgiveness or gave you the power to overcome sin. So if I go to the law, all I can do is walk away every time I mess up, run to the law, it says I shouldn't have done that, and think, oh great, God's now going to get me. And if you go to the law, you're always going to walk away with the sense that I'm a failure, I've messed up, I can never make this right, and God's going to get me. And some of you have been living under that because you go to the law, every time you mess up, you go to the law, and you are never getting free of the guilt. Let me tell you where you need to go. You need to go to the cross. You need to go to the cross. Because in essence, that's what Jesus was saying to this woman. Lady, I'm going to bear your condemnation. I'm going to bear your guilt. Everything required to make you pure and clean in the sight of my Father, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of all the dirt. I'm going to take care of all your sins. I'm going to take care of everything that you've done wrong. When you go to the cross, that's what you get. Complete forgiveness. He forgives us instantly. At that moment that you put your trust in Christ, not in my ability to stay clean, but my trust in Christ. He forgives me instantly. He forgives me completely. Colossians 2.14 says that he, he, took the, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. What's he talking about? All those laws. He wiped out those laws, and it says, and he nailed them to the cross, Everything God requires of you to have a relationship with him, Jesus is fulfilled. Every failure you've ever committed, are committing, or will ever commit, Jesus carries to the cross. And so he forgives you instantly, he forgives you completely, he forgives you repeatedly. The Apostle John who wrote this story, uh, the gospel that this story is embedded in, in 1 John 1.9, he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. To forgive our sin and to wash us or cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Those are all present tense words. What's he saying? If we go on confessing, what does he do? He goes on forgiving. Every time I confess, I agree with God that what I've done is wrong and I need his mercy, I need his grace. Every time I do that, he cleanses that out of my heart. He cleanses that out of my life. And so this thing of the cross is not just a point in time. It truly is a point in time. And that's an instant forgiveness. But as I continue to walk, as I continue to grow, as I continue to learn and I fall on my face and I make mistakes and I think I'm never going to get this right, I still need to run to the cross. Because there I find the Savior who just like with that woman on that day when she could have been stoned, for her sin. Took all her sin away and said, lady, I don't condemn you. And based on that, based on this thing that I'm doing for you, based on the fact that I'm not going to condemn you, based on that, you can have a new life. Go and sin no more. The Bible says there's only one solution, forgiveness. There's only one person who can give it to you, God. God. And there's only one way to get it. Ask. Ask. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This morning, as you heard Stephen share his story of how he came to know God, it's very clearly that God had put people in the path of this couple so that they might hear the good news about Jesus, so that they might be saved. This morning, God's put a whole church in front of you, He's put people in your path, people who know you, people who love you. He's put Christians in front of you. You've heard a story this morning. You've heard this message today. That is the grace of God. He loves you. He loves you. And this morning, based on His cross, your life can be changed. But you've got to give it up. You've got to turn away from doing life without God. Turn away from trying to run your own life. Turn away from your sin and turn to Him is the only answer, the only solution to your guilt, to your sin, and to your your desire for a new life. He's the only one. We call that turning. We call that repentance. And you can't repent unless you believe he's the answer, so it requires faith. And so we talk about repentance in church, and we talk about faith in church, but it's really simple. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I can't save me. Save me, Lord. Change me. And the moment you put your trust in Christ, the Bible says all your sins are washed away. And here's the other part of the good news, rarely stressed, is that the moment you trust Jesus, His Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And you remember how the law had no, nothing to offer you, nothing to help you live right? Now the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. He's there to lead you, guide you, and empower you to do everything that God has called you to do with your life. Would you come?